Welcome to the AMR Studio, a podcast dedicated to the multidisciplinary research on antimicrobial resistance, hosted by the Uppsala Antibiotic Center. Hi, I am Eva Garmendia. And I am Elin Fermier. Hello, everyone. Now we're going to listen to a super interesting interview that Eva did with Cassandra Quave. And this interview they did the 24th of August. Hi, dear listeners. Welcome back from this uh, summer break that we have had for the past two months. I'm super, super pumped today to be sitting here with Associate Professor Cassandra Quave from Emory University, whom I had the pleasure to meet last week at the Nordok Summer School here in Uppsala. And she gracefully accepted that when it's back into the US, we can sit down and talk a little bit about her very interesting and fascinating to me field, which is ethnobotanist. Cassandra, thank you so much and welcome to the AMA studio. Thanks so much, Eva, for having me. Let's start, I guess, from the very beginning to put people, you know, in, in this bubble of ethnobotany. Can you tell us what is ethnobotany and what does an ethnobotanist do? Oh, that's a great question. So ethnobotany has been described as the science of survival. It's the scientific study of the relationships that people have with nature, but with plants in particular. And so ethnobotanists may study how people use plants for food, for fuel, for construction materials, but also for medicine. And that's kind of where I come in. I study the use of medicinal plants. Mm -hmm. Great. So do you study one particular part of the world in terms of plants or are, what, what is your interest when it comes to this uh, plant world? Yeah. I mean, I've always had a bit of wanderlust, so it's hard to stay in one part of the world with our research. But we focus on what are known as global hotspots of biodiversity. There are 36 of these spread across the globe. A lot of our work has been done in areas that are somewhat isolated. These are mountaintop ranges. These are island chains. These are desert oases, um, different tracts of intact forest in, in different areas of the world. So I've done a lot of work in the Mediterranean and the Balkans, but you know, going back more than 20 years now, I really began my journey in this field in the Amazon. Mm -hmm. Is there a reason why these pockets might be of particular interest when looking at, at, at the biodiversity that is there? Is there something special about it? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, as someone that leads also a natural products chemistry, natural products discovery lab, we're looking for areas where we have not only diversity of plants, but also diversity of chemistry. And the two really go hand in hand. So to be considered a hotspot of biodiversity, these are areas where you have at least 1,500 endemic species. These are species that are only found in that part of the world. And also they need to have at least 70% of the native vegetation having um, beat, you know, where it's basically under threat or has already been lost. So these are places where you have rich species diversity, and yet that diversity is at risk of being lost forever. And so it's for those reasons that we really prioritize those regions for our studies. Yeah, so it's kind of in these places around the world, you will find things that are pretty unique that have been perhaps yes. evolving. These plants have even evolved separately from the rest of the plant world, and they might have something that we cannot find anywhere else. So that's why we need to go to those places that sounds exactly very interesting and amazing to go around the world to try to find these not only plants but as you're saying this chemistry mm -hmm. so can you tell us a little bit about your workflow so how does it look like I guess you will have maybe like a field season and then you will come back and try to see what is inside these plants how how do you work with it yeah so it, it's a long process but it's very logical I mean one of the first things that we do is really try to establish research collaborations with researchers in the countries where we work. That's a really big aspect of our program. This is also to help enforce, you know, research capacity building in areas that don't always have access to a lot of research tools, but also to, I think, work in a very ethical way in compliance with the Nagoya protocol as well to ensure that we are engaging in benefit sharing wherever we do our work. So there are a lot of permits involved, a lot of a lot of contracts involved. And then, you know, we work in the field during the field seasons, you're saying, when plants are typically in flower or in fruit. 
Um, we work with local communities. Um, in some cases, we may be um, undertaking interviews with individuals from those communities or especially with healers to better understand which plants they use for medicine. In my lab, we're most focused on plants used to treat infectious and inflammatory diseases. And so we would be interviewing people and trying to learn more about how plants are applied, for example, to the skin to treat an infection or a wound or a burn or a cut. We might be asking about plants that are taken internally to treat things like diarrhea or respiratory infections. Kind of the list goes on. So it's really around infectious and inflammatory disease. Then in the field, we're collecting the specimens. We are pressing them to make what's known as an herbarium specimen. Mm -hmm. um, herbaria are really critically important to the entire field of biology. And I would argue also for medicine, because some of our earliest you know, physicians were trained as botanists before they ever treated patients. But these herbarium specimens serve as a physical record of which species we're studying. Then we take what are known as bulk specimens. These are, you can imagine this is kind of like a grocery bag full of leaves or flowers or fruits or whichever part of the plant that people are using in traditional medicine to treat a certain infection. We dry those and then those are shipped back to the lab where they're extracted to pull out the chemical composition, all those different molecules found in the leaves or found in the flowers to then subject to our studies. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. So this description of how you work, it really reminds me now that we're here talking with Uppsala, you were talking to Uppsala, it reminds me of Carvon Linné, you know, that he would go either around the world and get these samples, or he would even get people that were living in all places around the world to send him samples. And there is these very big collections that mm -hmm. it's just, we still have those specimens, they are dried out, they're there. Do you ever work also with older samples, like um, specimens that were maybe taken up back in, in like 100 years ago or something like that? Yeah, I mean, older specimens are incredibly important to basically confirmation of the identity of the species that we've collected. And I have my heart's very close and near and dear to the story of Carl von Linné or Linnaeus. When I was in Uppsala, I also visited his Hammerby, his, his mm -hmm. kind of summer house and his gardens. Um, but what's fun is I did a little bit of genealogical research on my academic family tree and found that I'm actually descended two ways from Linnaeus, from <laughs> Linnaeus the senior and then his son, the junior. And so it was really um, a bit of a pilgrimage to be able to go back and kind of see where this transformational work began. And What's amazing is that many of the techniques that were, you know, developed around the organization of plants, around the collection and pressing of plants and how they're stored still today in separate sheets in herbaria originated um, with Linnaeus's work. So there's a there's a nice tie there. Yeah, for sure. It's uh, it's wonderful. And, and it's uh, I think it's beautiful that we perhaps haven't changed that much those very basic techniques of how we how we relate to these plants right we don't we don't need to lose touch with them and I think the fact of like pressing them and yeah. taking care of them and there is very fragile specimens is I think it's wonderful you were pointing out that part of what your lab is looking for is these molecules that have been for a long time traditionally used to treat infections and also as anti-inflammatories. So here we're moving a little bit more into what we talk here in the MR studio about, which is infectious diseases and in particular trying to find ways to deal with the resistance problem that we have. So how did you get actually into resistance related work? Was it just from the pure, you know, interest of chemicals and, you know, new antibiotics is something that we need? Or did you go at it from a different angle? You know, I have a very strange connection to microbes uh, that started at a very early age. Well, first, I was personally influenced by an infection when I was three years old. Um, I was born with multiple congenital birth defects of my skeletal system that required the amputation of my leg when I was three and I acquired a hospital associated infection. Mm -hmm. um, it was staph. It got into my bone. And so it created a really serious infection that uh, required further surgeries. Luckily it was a sensitive strain and, you know, we were able to treat it and I am here today, but that was kind of the, the first step, but really it was, you know, in elementary school, when I was recovering from yet another one of my surgeries and was on crutches. And so my mobility was a bit limited that my mom first brought home a microscope from school that she was able to borrow. Mm -hmm. And it was one of my first science fair projects 
where I used that microscope and I had some colored pencils and I basically drew the things that I saw swimming around in pond water and then ditch water. And then the next year I looked at things that were swimming around in the saliva of my dog and of my horse and even my saliva. And as, as I went further in school, I got more and more interested in this incredible, you know, unseen world that you could only tap into through the microscope. And, you know, I, I really began my work on antibiotic resistance when I was in middle school, believe it or not, studying E. coli found mm -hmm. in samples of ground beef and um, later looking at uh, E. coli from urinary tract infections and trying to really understand the evolution of resistance through, um, you know, gradual exposure to antibiotics. And so it's kind of funny because I think in a way I've never stopped doing science fair. <laughs> now I have a lab <laughs> of my own and I run these experiments, but I have a very long connection to the study of antimicrobial resistance um, to that age. Great. Yeah. I mean, that that's amazing that it goes so way back, you know, like sometimes it just happens that, you know, the, the natural development of a scientific career, it leads to to pockets where work is needed and resistance is obviously one of those. But for you, it feels like it's not only a very personal angle to it. It's something that you, you've been curious about and it's been part of your life from very early on. That's really cool. I, yeah. I really understand you because I also, when I was a kid, I was so interested in these things that were so small and they were all around us but we couldn't really see them and mm -hmm. it was fascinated to think that they've been around for so long and I was like I kind of want to work on that and then I ended up also working on the evolution of bacteria one way or another so very interesting similar paths in a way um, that's great yeah I think every every good scientist begins with the curious childhood I think that's <laughs> right. where that's where it begins I think yeah. that's also what what we should not lose right we should start with mm -hmm. a curious childhood and then kind of tap into that for the rest of our lives because it becomes so much more fun to do it that way yeah, in yeah. my opinion <laughs> great so I would like to now go a little bit more in depth about this aspect of finding new chemicals that can either directly treat infections or perhaps also help with already resistant infections can you tell us a little bit in the past 20 years working on this what is it that you have found yeah. So, I mean, I think like many groups have been interested in identifying new antibiotics. So drugs that can inhibit the growth or even kill bacteria. We have a paper that is just out this week. I'm really excited about on a natural product uh, molecule that we isolated from the Brazilian pepper tree, its leaves. That is a potent iron chelator, and it's not only effective in inhibiting the growth of even carbapenem-resistant Acinetobacter baumani, which is a gram-negative, very difficult to treat in, you know, bacterium, but also um, a number of different candida species, so pathogenic fungal species, including, you know, candida albicans, but also candida paracelopsis, glabrata, and even ARIS, which has a very, very high mortality rate among patients who are unfortunately are infected by this. So that's one example. Other examples are projects where we've looked at ways to restore the activity of antibiotics using an adjuvant approach. And so basically the idea here is that we would, you know, we've identified and isolated molecules from plants that when combined with a traditional antibiotic can improve or restore the activity of that antibiotic. We've been successful in that in a study that was conducted in collaboration with uh, Christian Mellinger's lab at Notre Dame, where we found a molecule, it's a cleridane diterpene in structure, that when combined with beta-lactam antibiotics restores the activities of those beta-lactams. And then we've also looked at ways to use compounds that inhibit biofilm formation, which is a form of intrinsic resistance mm -hmm. to enhance the activity or the ability of antibiotics to kind of penetrate those biofilms and clear, especially medical device infections. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we've kind of touched on different areas. I think the area I'm most passionate about currently is our work on antivirulence agents. I'm really intrigued by this idea of 
using some of these small molecules to interfere with bacterial communication in such a way that we can change their behavior. Mm -hmm. And as a result of changing their behavior, make them less virulent, basically restrict their ability to really cause as much damage to the host, which again can be used in combination with an antibiotic and give that antibiotic and the host more time to clear out the infection. So those are some of the things that we've been doing. That's a pretty big array of different kind of mechanisms and different kind of molecules. I'm curious, on the early stages of, of this work, is there anything of, on the way that they use these plants that helps you or indicates you where to look for the activity or what kind of potential development of the chemicals in those plants might go through because an anti-infective is very different than a direct acting molecule that kills bacteria and is very different than a biofilm. The methods that you will have to use to test it, to enhance it, will be different. So is there anything early on on the way that traditionally these plants have been used that might point you or help you in this path forward? Yeah, I think, you know, we're always trying to critically think about what are the questions that we should be asking. And there's a lot that we can learn from traditional medicine. So for example, if something is being prepared as a tea and then used as a rinse for a non-healing ulcerated wound, something that's chronically infected, perhaps with a biofilm, that might indicate to me a few different things. Number one, it might indicate to me that it's a water-soluble molecule because it's being prepared as a aqueous extract rather than something in an alcohol mm -hmm. base or even a fat base. You know, we, we will often try to replicate the traditional means of preparing the medicine. This has proven to be a very effective approach. For example, the Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine of 2015 went to Dr. Yu Tu who basically did the same thing and that she went back to the traditional means of preparing the wormwood as a room temperature maceration. And because of that approach was able to isolate enough of the active compound that has then developed into a, an anti-malarial that's saved countless lives. It's called artemisinin. So we're, we're doing much the same thing. We also look to historic literature. It's not just about interviews from today, but it's also historic literature. Um, we collaborate with people in the classics that can read ancient Greek and Latin <laughs> to better understand what's being said in these, in these different, you know, these different texts, but really just trying to glean those clues. And that can also inform us in many cases, you know, what types of pathogens might we want to test? I think one of the challenges in the work that we do or in this field in general is that in the past, there's always been this, you know, I think bias in some ways against these traditional medicines. So that's in such a way that if something doesn't work in your one biological assay, if it doesn't have growth inhibition, for example, as a typical antibiotic would have. And in the past, you know, in many cases that would be dismissed as this is just, you know, not a valid lead for a medicine. But what we've found is that, you know, that's not the only question we should be asking that you can have in many cases, potent antivirulence compounds that do not affect growth at all, but instead affect bacterial signaling and which can be very valuable as, as future medicine. So, you know, it's all about finding the right questions. Yeah. Right. I find it fascinating you know that we cannot just go at it like let's go for this chemical and let's try it in this very traditional way which would be like you know plate-based essays for example mm -hmm. we I think it's needed in order to find new things that we also try to test them in this particularly different mm -hmm. ways like it could be uh, signaling or actually I think that the signaling question for the virulence is extremely interesting as you were saying that you are very very kind of like now into this because we don't really know so much about how bacteria talk to each other do we right now we're learning more we're learning more and more we know that you know they use different types of communication tools in staphylococcus aureus which is one of the pathogens i study quite a bit you have these little peptides that they produce and release and there are different structures of those peptides. And so you can have different types of peptides that can interfere with how other 
um, species perhaps interact with the staff or even other strains. So there, yeah, there's, there's definitely an interesting chemical language that is, is starting to emerge. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Very recently I was having a conversation with someone and they were telling me about that in many cases, especially in ICU patients, they might have bacteria in their urinary tract infection, for example, and bacteria that when you analyze it, it should actually be infective and it should actually be you know creating an, an active mm -hmm. diagnosable urinary tract infection but for some reason and we don't really know yet why they are present there but they might not actually be having the same infectious process that they might have on a person that is out of the ICU or not catheterized in these cases he was talking about people that are in the ICU with a catheter in their bladder and I found it very interesting and I wonder he was saying that Perhaps there might be more than one type of bacteria and they might be keeping each other in check. And that would actually be by, the, you know, these chemicals that are being produced. And I, I found it pretty like telling that, you know, we need to kind of maybe know a little bit more how bacteria talk to each other if we want to avoid infection in particular, if they're already doing it in nature, right? <laughs> Yeah, no, 100%. I agree. I mean, when we think about what's happening in the gut, I mean, you have many different microbes. We not only have bacteria, we have viruses, we have fungi. Like, I mean, there, there are all kinds of organisms cross communicating there and then also communicating with the host. Mm -hmm. um, I think there's really exciting information that's emerging there. But going back to your example of UTIs, another study that we have um, just wrapped up and are getting ready to submit is with one of our urogynecology fellows. And she did this really excellent work. Her name's Eve Rose uh, Joseph, Dr. Eve Rose Joseph. But she did this work where she looked at, you know, um, isolates from urine samples from patients that have these recurrent urinary tract infections and also looked at, you know, acute kind of sporadic urinary tract infections to really understand the role of what are known as persister cells. Now, persisters is yet another version of intrinsic resistance. The idea is that some cells within a population can enter more of a dormant state. Kind of, They kind of hide out to kind of slow down their metabolic pathways and then can pop back out. And so she was looking at the roles that different antibiotics or exposure to different antibiotics can have in, in creating larger persister populations. And so I think, again, it's one of these things where when we're introducing drugs into these systems, there are many things that are happening with these microbes that we still don't fully understand. That's pretty cool. Very good example. Looking forward yeah. to read about that. Yeah. Actually, now that you mentioned this collaboration with uh, urogynecologists, for example, I, I wanted to ask you a little bit about the interdisciplinarity, multidisciplinarity of your field and the work that you do, because it's not only that you have like field season and then going back to the lab, but I, I kind of get from the way that you talk about your work that you also collaborate and work with a lot of different professionals and people. Can you tell us a little bit how your, your reaching out with other people works? Yeah. I mean, I think the best way to think about my research group is that we're a very horizontal lab, whereas you might have, for example, in a basic science lab, very, you know, a lot of kind of vertical elements where they dive down on one host or one pathogen and focus on one or a few genes within that pathogen. And that kind of work is incredibly important to forming the basis of our understanding of, of many of these pathogens. What we do is a bit different. We take a broader perspective because we're working with, again, more than 2000 extracts of plants. We are screening them on these different platforms. And basically when we find something that looks interesting, that has some interesting bioactivity, my model that I've found to be very successful is then I you know, try to identify who is that expert in the world that has that vertical lab that focuses on that pathogen and whichever gene or, or different resistance mechanisms within that pathogen that we think our drug is targeting. And that's how we build out those collaborations because then we're able to provide these interesting tool molecules that they can use in their, in their systems to query what's happening um, with their pathogen, but then they can also help us in understanding the mechanisms behind how our drugs work. 
But across the board in my research group, you know, we have a mix of scientists. We have natural products, chemists, microbiologists, pharmacologists, and then clinicians as well that I mentor that come to me primarily from urogynecology, but also dermatology, which is where my home department is. And I love, I love that translatable connection because in the end, and this is something I really try to remind my, my team of, and especially my younger students in training is, you know, we're not trying to treat something in a test tube where, you know, our ultimate goal is to find solutions for whole beings, for humans. And so I think having that clinical perspective is really educational, not only for my trainees, but also for myself. Yeah, and one thing that we try to also show here with the podcast and the Uppsala Antibiotics Center is that you cannot do it alone, you know, like no. the, it's, it's it's a team sport. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's a team yeah. sport and and it's so important that we we understand each other's way of seeing things and also each other's ways of working in a sense, right? And and the as you're saying, the particular expertise. And if your expertise is, you know, finding these leads, these hits, these things, and then you cannot expect it to be the expert also in what happens after, right? Exactly. How has it worked for you on the communication aspect between the different disciplines or the different people. I think that's maybe my greatest talent. I'm a bit of a, a what would it be called? A polyglot? Like I, <laughs> I feel like I... Scientific polyglot? You know, <laughs> yeah. I, like, I speak, I speak the different languages of science, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Like I can feel very comfortable speaking with a microbiologist and a chemist or an anthropologist or a botanist. So it's, it's, I, you know, I, I kind of feel like I can help the group as the translator in chief, if that makes sense, mm -hmm. Yeah, it's... Um, of bringing these ideas together. Um, but the reality is, you know, as a science communicator, when I'm out giving talks, people always ask, well, how do you do all these things? It's like, it's not me personally doing all the experimental work. It's my team, my collaborators, students, like we're all coming together in this and I'm just the spokesman. So <laughs> great. <Yeah. laughs> That's a good role to have. And, and you know, like, yeah. I, I can see how it might be that a chemist is talking to a microbiologist and the way that they might look at the experiments or the way that they might look at how to move forward and then you might be in the middle no but I think this chemist they're meaning this and I think now the microbiologist is actually looking into this thing because of yeah. this and this and that that's pretty cool <laughs> I want to move forward to talk a little bit about your wishes or or your not expectations, but on your field, if there is something that is not perhaps as great as you would like it to be, or something that you would like to see the community together moving forward to, is there any sort of wish list that you have for, I'm not going to say the world we live in, but maybe the, <laughs> the field that we are working on in terms of uh, antibiotics, infectious diseases, or resistance? Yeah, I mean... I think that, you know, I often think if I had, you know, a very, very wealthy benefactor. <laughs> if you had a million said, dollars, why would it? Uh, yeah. <laughs> here's, here's $500 million, do what you will with it. What would I do with that? I mean, I think that it's important to recognize that AMR is a global problem. It is not going to be restricted to any one country. It is something that we will all face. As a global problem, we also need to think of this from the lens of it being, you know, there are paths towards a solution coming from a global perspective as well. As someone that studies biodiversity, you know, one thing that I've really noted is that in many of the places on earth where we have the greatest biodiversity, at the same time, we have the least well-supported research infrastructure. There are brilliant scientists in countries all across the globe that just don't have access to the tools, to the technologies, to the training. And so were I to have a dream, I would love to set up a global network that really places institutions of excellence that are outfitted with the appropriate technologies and training opportunities within those countries where we know there's a lot of biodiversity to tap into, but done in such a way that it's not people from the West just swooping in to try and, you know, do science there, but it really being truly collaborative and really being led by scientists from within these countries. And I think that there's so much for us to explore. If you if you think of it this way, you know, there are somewhere between 374 to 391,000 species of plants on earth. And out of those, at least 34,000 are medicinal plants. There's some 
record of these plants being studied or being used in traditional systems of medicine. Now let's go down even further. Within those 34,000, every single species, if you're looking at even a single leaf of a species, that leaf may contain thousands of unique chemicals, unique molecules. So the grand majority of these species have never been really rigorously assessed. So there's just incredible untapped chemistry that's sitting out there that could be explored or we did we only have, you know, the resources to do so. Mm-hmm. So I think that's what I would do. If, if uh, any benefactor is out there listening, call me. I have, I have a proposition. <laughs> <laughs> I can make it happen. If you put the money, I can make it happen. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I, I just, I think there's a lot of potential out there. And I think it's an exciting area for students. Any of the students are listening to the podcast too. I mean, this is not a field where you're likely to get scooped. There's just so much that we still don't know about these natural products. We do know that they're you know, they've been used in human medicine for centuries, if not millennia. And I feel like it's a disservice for us to ignore that record of knowledge. I think it's it's wise to try and understand why these traditions have passed down from century to century. Right. It's kind of thinking about things like this. You know, if you have a family recipe, let's say that grandma makes a wonderful, I don't know, a wonderful cake. If the cake actually tastes really horrible, the family is not going to pass down that recipe every year, you know? And so the same applies to traditional medicines. We share the things that we have empirical knowledge of functionality for. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's it's not just lore. No, there's, there's, yeah, I agree. I see it. It's a bit like if, if we talk evolutionary talk right now, you know, mm-hmm. if there are certain traits in certain species that are still present now that were present very back far in time there is a reason for it otherwise they would have been lost just out of randomness and stochasticity Mm -hmm. you know positive selection be it of a gene in a species or of a recipe of how to make extract of a plant yeah it has a reason behind it right and to me my curiosity driven being tells me I just want to know why it's not even if it's going to give me a new antibiotic but I'm very happy that you're bringing it this point of view because I get a, a lot of people I hear that they when we talk about AMR and resistance and the lack of a new working molecule for the past 30 years you know this this narrative that they say but yeah of course because we already have found everything that there is to find in the natural <laughs> products you probably how have heard that before right is that how arrogant is that oh my gosh but, but you're right that yeah. is that is exactly the narrative i've been told over and over for the past 20 years and i just say i'm sorry you're wrong this is this We've is not, not what found everything yeah <laughs> so i'm very very happy that you are telling us this today and i really hope that the people <laughs> listening they they get to maybe next time that they hear about this they might just say yeah but you know we may not know everything that is out there in these natural products and these plants um i mean not to even mention the deep oceans which is like another thing oh that's that's a whole other you know a whole other level of diversity of of not of not knowing what is there of the of the unknown Mm -hmm. right oh that's very very nice uh unfortunately we need to move forward with the interview i could talk to you for like hours on end i feel like but Talking about communication and you being the wonderful communicator that you are, you host a podcast, which we will leave the link below, obviously, Food Pharmacology, if you guys are interested. Mm -hmm. You have written books as well. You have talked so much to what is called the general public, which can mean a lot of different things. Could you share with us some parts of your field that are generally, you think, misunderstood? And we already talked about the idea that, you know, we already know everything about the natural products in, in infection biology. That obviously we, we've got it out of the way. We, we can find new things out there. Other things that, you know, more that general public might not really get from the work that you do. I think the the challenge is that, as in all fields of science, there's a lot of nuance involved. And, you know, I feel like the public and rightfully so wants to have more control over their own health. And so many people look to natural solutions for managing their health. And there are plenty of commercial products out there that will tell you they're going to do miraculous things for you. The challenge, of course, is that we don't necessarily have the information resources out there for the public to help them make an informed decision. 
And so I really try to spend some of my time putting out fires of bad ideas of things you should not do with certain natural products because they could be dangerous to your health. I think if there's a lesson I really try to share with the public, it's that yes, nature's amazing. There are many medicines that remain to be discovered. There are many medications that are based on natural products we found in plants in the first place, but not everything in nature is safe. And that it's really important to be informed and understand both the healing potential, but also the toxicity potential of some of these herbs. Mm -hmm. Um, That's probably the biggest area I I spend a lot of time on. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's the limit between what is toxic and what is healing can be Mm -hmm. very small as well, right? We know that everything in in the right dose might work and in the wrong dose might be very, very uh, dangerous as well. That's That's a good point. Cassandra, it has been wonderful to talk to you. I, I'm really happy to have had something so different of the things that we talked. I think we had so far 60 episodes. You are the 61st episode. Oh, and we, Thank we you. didn't have yet a botanist and not an ethnobotanist, which also brings, <laughs> I think, the human part of the world we live in. I really like to remind people, you know, that resistance per se, it's not really a problem if it wasn't because we humans are kind of in the middle of it. Not only because resistance is something natural that has been serving bacterial communities for really, really long time, but also because of the way that we use the medicines is what kind of has led to the problem we have today. So I like that, you know, there is ethnobotany that is not only looking into plants itself, but also how we humans have been relating to plants and how mm-hmm. that might also bring new aspects and new solutions to antimicrobial resistance. As a last question, I open up the audio stage for you. If there's anything else that you would like to tell our audience, anything that is coming up, people should be watching out or maybe just a message that you want to leave out there. Yeah, I mean, I would direct people to my website, CassandraQuave.com. Um, if you're interested in getting regular updates on kind of, you know, the science behind natural medicines, you can subscribe to my newsletter. It's called Nature's Pharmacy. It's on Substack. You can also check out videos on my Teach Ethnobotany YouTube channel, or you can buy my book. It's called The Plant Hunter. It was published in 2021 with Penguin Press. Perfect. Great. A lot of a lot of content, a lot of material if people <laughs> really want to learn a bit more. We had half an hour, which is wonderful to hear your voice and, and share these tidbits. So thank you so much again. And I hope to see a lot of the things coming up from your lab and from your work also as communicator around. Thank you, Cassandra. Great. Thank you so much. Hi there. Welcome back. And welcome back, Ellen. We haven't been recording for nearly two months now so long how does it feel it feels a little weird but fun to be at it again yes i am uh, very happy to have you here in front of me and also i guess we can share with our audience that you are expecting a baby coming this year yes in november (laughs) crazy Yes. So we're going to have another AMR Studio baby. As you remember, maybe that a few years back, we have our previous co-host, Jennifer, also having a baby mm. while she was co-hosting this podcast. So maybe this podcast actually has something <laughs> with uh, bringing up new new babies into this world. It might be, might be. <laughs> Before we talked about the interview we just heard, I actually wanted to bring up a couple of things. And one is, uh, how come I got to meet uh, Cassandra, mm-hmm. actually? She came to to be part of the Nordoc Summer School, which is a summer school that happens for a compendium of Nordic universities for their PhD students. And every summer is in a different city. And this summer was the turn of Uppsala to organize this summer school. And they did it actually together with Karolinska Institute in Stockholm as well. So we had a group of students coming to Uppsala for three days and having lectures and learning about uh, resistance in particular, what this summer school about. So I participated in that summer school, both having a workshop about communications of resistance, which kind of tracks with what we're Mm -hmm. doing right now. And I also was the moderator of a very interesting panel of discussion. And within that summer school, Cassandra had a lecture, two-hour lecture about natural products as you have heard in the interview, she kind of works with this, like looking for new things in the nature. And 
the fact that she came to this summer school is because she was invited by one of the organizers, Professor Anders Backlund, that works with a similar thing here at Uppsala University. Mm-hmm. Uh, he runs the pharmacognosy group at Uppsala University. And I didn't know what pharmacognosy was before I met actually Anders Backlund. Mm-hmm. And pharmacognosy is looking at research focus on bioactive substances of natural origin. So a little bit similar to what Cassandra does, mm. but it doesn't have to be from the aspect of, you know, ethnobotany, which is plants and how humans use plants. But in general, how can we tap onto the evolutionary structure activity optimization that nature has done? So mm. in general, what is it out there that has been optimized by nature and then maybe has some activity that we can use as a proto-drug or to base it for new drugs, etc. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. that's what this group works at here at Uppsala University. Ah, that's super cool. Now, what did you think of Cassandra's interview? I particularly really enjoy talking to yes, her. Yes, and I can tell that you enjoy talking to each other. And I can also tell that both of you are very... I know you can tell that Cassandra has her own podcast, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> But I mean, this was very nice. And I think it was, after I listened to it, I was like, I understand everything that you talked about. And that was so nice because you you were both, and Cassandra and you were able to describe everything in very like simple and approachable terms. And I think that was very nice. You could see definitely when I was briefing her before the interviews, like this is the kind of audience we have. Mm. This is the kind of level we normally explain things at. And she was just so on point mm-hmm. on like explaining a slightly difficult or more technical terms on the go. And I mean, yeah, that's, yeah, that's for like sure. wonderful. Yeah. But I found it very also new for our podcast in particular, mm-hmm. this idea that, you know, looking for new anti-infectives or new anti-virulence or new biofilm inhibiting mm-hmm. drugs, for example, in the way that, you know, this traditional medicine uses plants. Absolutely. So Absolutely. It was pretty eye-opening to me, especially the part that, you know, we still don't know so much. No, and I think maybe I will expose my own stupidity here now, (laughs) but I think I have been one of those people who have been like, yeah, but we have already found everything that we can find in nature. And now when I listen to this, of course we have not. (laughs) I mean, that's that's so, I mean, it's stupid to even think that. So I, I am very happy to have like expanded my knowledge regarding this area because I mean, when she talk about the biodiversity and everything that is available to us and just from one leaf, how many like chemical molecules and everything we could have in there. Of course, we haven't found everything. Do you think we will get there? There will be a day where we have actually found everything? I have a very <laughs> hard time imagining <laughs> that right a now. philosophical <laughs> question, right? But uh, yeah, it's interesting. And So I think that was very eye-opening to me. And I also really enjoyed the part when she talked about how they work and how they try to communicate with the communities that they were close by. Because, I mean, as you talked about, this knowledge that is passed on through generations, of course it must have some kind of meaning, because otherwise that that information wouldn't keep on spreading. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And uh, I think that was very inspiring. Yeah. There was one thing that she kind of just mentioned in passing, which mm-hmm. is that the way that they were kind of, uh, it's in agreement or works within the Nagoya protocol. And yeah. I actually didn't know what that was because no. we don't work in that same area. So I was looking on the internet about what this Nagoya protocol is. And it's actually pretty interesting. It's a protocol, a new way of working that was established in 2014, not so long ago, that aims at the fair and equitable sharing of benefits arising from the utilization of biological diversity. So basically when you work like her, which is going out there and trying to find what diversity can provide for Mm -hmm. us in terms of either genetically or chemicals in that case, you kind of have to work in certain ways following a certain protocol. Mm. This is trying to contribute to the conservation and the sustainability use of biodiversity on Earth. Ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's kind of like, so no one can just take ownership of something that is somewhere else and that we have to kind of share all these resources and that we, all the information is openly and readily available for other people to use. Mm. That's what I kind of understand from that Mm. Nagoya protocol. So I think that's pretty important, especially now when, you know, research is so broad and people go to different places to research different things. And I Mm. think it's also very important, like you were saying, that they are conscious about involving the communities that Mm. have for a really long time have relationship with these natural products or Mm. natural resources. Yeah, for sure. 
Yeah. I also really like the way that she, how she explained how her lab works, mm-hmm. that they're more of a horizontal lab that is very broad. And then they find something that they think is interesting. And then they contact someone or some people that are more like specialized. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's it's a very nice workflow in that way to see some, some people that are very broad and then they contact specialists. And I think we should work, work more like that. But I think there is also like a added value of having some labs that really specifically work this way yes. because that's how they can contribute most mm. to the development of or knowledge or mm. science where they have these very particular things they are very good at in this case for example methodology or going out there yeah. and finding the things and then the applications can be broadened up so much by going into these collaborations with very specialized mm. labs so i think it's good that there are groups like that but i do think like you're saying that uh, if specializing groups would be able to get cues on things they're working on that could be applied by Mm -hmm. other specialized groups Mm -hmm. and then reaching out to establish these collaborations. Mm -hmm. That could be a nice way to kind of span the the connections and and the work, right? And I mean, isn't that what we talk a lot about in this podcast? It's the communication and collaboration between groups and between a multidisciplinary stuff and mm-hmm, such. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the key, I think. I, I guess. I think it, we're moving more towards these very collaborative projects where we agree that people have expertise in different things, but there are still things we can share. Yeah, I for sure so, hope so. Nice. All right. Any yeah. other pointers for this? Should we move on to our new section? Which, I think it's time for the new section. Yes, which we are bringing out two research articles that even though they are in two different systems, I think they're pretty much similar to each other, actually, in the way they're looking into. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. See you there. Woohoo. Welcome to this new section, first one for the autumn semester. Mm-hmm. So, Ellen, you're going to talk to us about carbapenem resistance, right? That you really love. I know that you yes. really love it. So, <laughs> what paper are you bringing us this month? This month, I have read a paper named Antibiotics Promote Intestinal Growth of Carbapenem Resistant Enterobacteriaceae by Enriching Nutrient and Depleting Microbial Metabolites. And this was published in Nature Communications the 22nd of August. So yes, this is a paper very much up my alley since <laughs> I, I work with carbapenem-resistant Klebsiella, which is a species within the Enterobacteriaceae family. Basically, in this paper, they have looked at carbapenem-resistant Enterobacteriaceae. You can shorten it CRE. These strains of bacteria are very problematic since they are very hard to treat. Carbapenems are one of the last resort antibiotics that we have. It's the beta-lactam antibiotic. But unfortunately, now we have strains that are getting more and more resistant. Mm -hmm. And that's a problem. And these CRE strains are famous for colonizing the intestine. And this is a problem because then we get like a a reservoir of uh, pathogenic strains that can then infect us in different ways. For example, like bloodstream infections, and this can get very serious. But we also, I think we have talked about this in the podcast before, we have commensal bacteria in our gut microbiome. And these work to like protect us from pathogenic strains to some content. Uh, but then the problem is that if we treat then an infection with a broad spectrum antibiotic, this means that it will not only kill the pathogens that we are like trying to treat, but also the bacteria that we have in our microbiome, Mm -hmm. in our gut. Mm -hmm. And when we do kill the good bacteria, this can promote expansion of pathogens then. They can take up a bigger space, Mm -hmm. (laughs) so Mm -hmm. to speak. So what they have done in this study is they have looked at how broad spectrum antibiotics impacts the colonization of CRE strains. So they have worked based on the nutrient niche hypothesis, which means that antibiotics disrupts the gut microbiota, and then we will have less competition for the nutrients that we have in our stomachs. And then there will be more nutrients available for the pathogens to use, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The gut microbiota also produces metabolites when using up the nutrients. And some of these metabolites are actually able to inhibit growth of pathogens. Mm -hmm. But when we remove the good bacteria, we won't produce as much metabolites. And then we will not inhibit these pathogens to the same extent. So they can grow more and we get sick. All right. So it's kind of like a double effect, right? Mm -hmm. If you kill the good bacteria in our gut, first you leave more food for the potential bad bacteria to grow, but also you're not producing these potentially inhibitory 
molecules by the good bacteria. So then they can also grow more. Exactly. So it's like they grow more because of the two yeah. reasons, not only one. Exactly. So it's so we, we treat with antibiotics to get well, but then we also like promote growth of or colonization uh-huh. these CRE strains. Uh-huh, uh-huh. So what they have done then is that they have looked at fecal microbiota from 11 healthy donors and then they have spiked these samples or these communities with CRE strains. Mm -hmm. And then they have tested these communities or these microbiomes with eight different broad spectrum antibiotics. Mm -hmm. On top of this, they have also done two mouse models, which Mm -hmm. I think is very impressive to fit into one paper. But in those, they have looked at only CRE E. coli and then they used Tazobactam piperacillin. Yeah, to kind of reduce a little bit the amount of mice you have to use. (laughs) Exactly. So that is very reasonable, I think. But as you can hear, they have done a lot of things in one paper. Mm-hmm, so it's a mm-hmm. very, very full paper. I mean, it's a nature communications paper. Yeah, true. So I guess you, can, true. you have to do other mm-hmm. experiments. So what they have more specifically looked into then is how the treatment affects the species diversity within the microbiome. Mm-hmm. They looked to if they saw an enrichment of nutrients and a decrease of metabolites. Mm-hmm. This looked into what nutrients these CRE strains uh, used as nitrogen and carbon sources. Mm-hmm. And finally, if the metabolites that decrease during antibiotic treatment if these actually have an inhibitory effect. All right. So they did the whole... The whole shebang. The whole shebang <laughs> of looking both at the use of nutrients, but also about the potential inhibitory mm. capabilities of these metabolites as yeah, well. Yeah, they mm-hmm. covered a lot. So what did they find? Yes, and this is the interesting thing then. So they can see that treatment enriched for a wide range of nutrients and these nutrients that could support CRE growth. Uh So this means that we can actually see that we get less good bacteria in the stomach, we get more nutrients, and the CRE strains benefits from this. And they can use the nutrients. They can use the nutrients, Uh exactly. Because these nutrients can then act as both carbon and nitrogen sources Uh to support the CRE growth. Then this was interesting, actually, because this I didn't know, that antibiotic treatment actually result in higher oxygen availability Uh in the gut. Uh Aha, that I didn't know. No, I didn't know that either. And apparently this is very beneficial for the CRE strains Mm -hmm. because they grow better in the presence of oxygen. Mm So that is also very like counterproductive in a way. <laughs> and finally, that antibiotic treatment meant less metabolite production and that meant less inhibition of the CRE strain. Because they could see that these metabolites in particular could actually prevent the growth. Yeah. Uh, and they saw this both in vitro and, and in, in vivo. vivo. Yes. All right. So yeah, kind of good evidence for yes. for this theory to kind of be proved that this is the way that it works. Because I, I know that for some time we we have known, yeah. you know, that mm-hmm. you take broad spectrum antibiotics, you will get diarrhea, you will get dysbiosis, which is change in your mm. normal composition of the microbiota. And we do know that these CRE strains, carbapenem resistant strains, tend to accumulate and colonize mm-hmm. following these treatments and then we can have uh, very resistant blood infections or UTI yeah. infections because the gut is colonized. That doesn't mean that every time it's going to end up in an infection, oh, no, but no. the risk is increased. Mm-hmm. So now I feel like if we know these metabolites are important because they will prevent the CRE colonization mm-hmm. and these nutrients are also important because they are the ones that are used by the CREs mm-hmm, mm-hmm. to grow. Maybe we can use that information to prevent colonization. Yeah, exactly. Possibly, yeah. I guess more the metabolites part could be a potential treatment. Yeah, or yeah, for could sure. You take it as we're taking antibiotics, yeah. spectral antibiotics, right? Mm-hmm. For example. And I mean, and in general, I think we need to get more research and evidence regarding how to treat with narrow spectrum antibiotics mm-hmm. right to to <laughs> and that's kind of the goal right yeah, yeah. to save our poor guts <laughs> right yeah and i think i mean part of the problem with not being able to give narrow spectrum antibiotics is not only that it's difficult to get this very narrow spectrum antibiotics it's also that we don't have in many cases the diagnostics that will exactly. tell us specifically mm-hmm. what is it that we're treating and mm-hmm. you cannot go with everything at it. No, I understand completely why we treat with broad spectrum. I mean, you want to save your patient. That's right. the important thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You just, but as you say, we need more diagnostic tools, faster ways to diagnose what kind of strains we actually have. And then, yeah, hopefully in the future. <laughs> but it's good. Then that's the take home message. You know, when you take, when one takes mm-hmm. broad spectrum antibiotics for an infection, 
the microbiota gets affected. There yeah. is a change into the kind of microbiota that increases tasty food for the potential mm. colonizers, <laughs> but also decreases the not so good things around that will might prevent that uh, the colonization happens. Mm. That's pretty run up. Nice. Yeah. Nice paper. Mm. Of course, we leave the link to the original research. Yes. It's open access. So anybody that wants to go and see the amount of data that they got, you can go in. A lot mm. of supplementary material as well. But other than that, very nice summary. Thank you so much, Ellen. Yeah, thank you. Let's dive into your paper. So yeah, my paper, it's, I think, kind of similar to what you brought to us, which is we use antibiotics, what happens in the environment of the gut, but from another different perspective on the one health spectrum in a mm. sense, you know, human health, human gut, and now we're going to move towards rivers and biofilms. Ooh. So this paper titled Submic Antibiotics Influence the Microbiome, Resistome and Structure of Riverine Biofilm Communities was published in Frontiers in Microbiology of First of August. And first, I have to say, I love the word riverine. It just feels <laughs> like it's a precious stone in a sense, but also it just means that it comes from the river. It's poetic almost. I like it, riverine. It sounds so good. <laughs> Apart from that, um, so you were talking about the gut and now we talk about rivers. So what these people went about is to characterize the response of natural Riverine, that means from the river biofilm communities, when there is presence of sub-MIC antibiotics. And sub-MIC, it means that is under the minimum inhibitory concentration of a particular antibiotic. Uh, minimum inhibitory concentrations, it just means the amount of antibiotics that you need to completely clear up um, a sample from the bacteria that is there. So mm. you basically are inhibiting the growth of this bacteria or you are actually actively killing them. But both it basically means you clear up whatever is in there in terms of bacteria. So for quite some time, we have known that when we work under the minimum inhibitory concentrations, that means when there is bacteria that is in the same sample or environment where there is antibiotic but a sub-MIC concentration, things happen. It's not like equal to not have any antibiotic whatsoever. Mm -hmm. So we know that sub-MIC can increase mutagenesis. That means the amount of mutations that happens. It can increase DNA transfer. It can increase the expression of virulence genes and factors. It can also increase conjugation and it can increase selection of resistance, even when you are not using very like inhibitory mm -hmm, concentrations mm -hmm. of antibiotic. So things are happening there. And we also, on another side, know a lot about selection and environmental pockets where there is a lot of antibiotic. Mm -hmm. So above MIC, for example, clinical environment or wastewater treatment plants or manufacturing facilities around manufacturing mm -hmm. facilities. These are called AMR hotspots. And there's a lot of research being done into how these pockets of the environment actually contribute to the selection and, and evolution of resistance yeah. and resistant mm -hmm. genes. Mm -hmm. But we don't know so much what happens in these natural parts of the environment where we might not have very high concentrations of antibiotics, but there's still some kind of concentration mm. of antibiotics, mm. which could be, for example, very downstream of wastewater treatment plants or manufacturing facilities or any other pockets mm. that, that are not really very exposed to antibiotics. What happens there to the bacterial communities? Yeah. And I think we ha might have actually talked to, about it before here in the podcast, in nature, generally, bacteria are not just like living by themselves alone and <laughs> swimming around and like in a test tube in the lab. No. They tend to form communities and those communities tend to form the shape of biofilms. Yeah. And biofilms are these structures that have a extracellular matrix that kind of brings all these bacteria cozy together mm -hmm. and there are different species and there are even different microorganisms which could be also some diatoms or some protozoa, some other things. Mm -hmm. So kind of like having a hippie happy life 
life in yeah. the river, right? So this group was like, what if we take these natural biofilm communities that live in rivers, we expose them to sub-inhibitory concentrations of antibiotics, different antibiotics. Do we see a difference in the biofilms? Mm -hmm. Do we see any difference in the selection of resistant genes, which will be the resistome? Can we see any effect whatsoever? Yeah, right? that is super interesting. Actually. Yeah, it is because I think we need to look into real life situations in a sense. Yeah. And we talk about One Health and how the you know environment and animals and humans are come together when it comes to the to the dynamics of resistance mm. and understanding how these things work in in the natural environment like rivers mm -hmm. with possibly low concentration of antibiotics is really important. Can this actually be a reservoir for resistance? Similar to yeah. what you were saying about can this CRE in your gut mm. be, they are reservoirs for resistant infections? How does the dynamic works and why is it happening? So a little bit similar. Yeah, and I guess it's very easy to only focus on the, like, as you call it, the, the hotspots where mm -hmm. we have higher concentrations because you like, you associate, okay, higher concentrations, we get more resistance. But as you say, this sub Mick phenomenon is very real and it's been proven many times that there is something yeah for sure there's something happening bacteria are doing things and, and <laughs> here in Uppsala with our boss Don Anderson they were pioneers into showing you know there is selection mm. for resistant genes happening at sub MIC so mm -hmm. how How does this actually affect biofilms in the natural? Mm. How they actually did it? So the experimental setup mm -hmm. is pretty cool because they create an artificial microcosms in the lab in some bioreactors where they actually bring the water that they recovered from the river weekly and they pass it through this bioreactor. So it's as as natural as possible, but it's still in a lab environment that you can do testing and replicates and have controls because that's what we want. Mm -hmm. So they took these bioreactors, they bring the, the river water, they establish the biofilms, and then they start treating them with different antibiotics at some concentrations. They used three antibiotics. One was ciprofloxacin, streptomycin, and oxytetracycline. Mm -hmm. And they used three sub-inhibitory concentrations of each one of them, one-tenth, one-fiftieth, and one hundredth and they did also replicates because they can work with it in, in the lab pretty nicely. And why did they choose ciprofloxacin, streptomycin, and oxytetracycline where streptomycin and oxytetracycline are broad spectrum antibiotics mm -hmm. which we just talked mm -hmm. about. Uh, ciprofloxacin tends to be found in the effluents of wastewater treatment plants and those three antibiotics are also either critically or highly important uh, according to the WHO list of antibiotics. So that's very nice. So how does these actually affect uh, our biofilms. And once they treat it like that, they have the controls and they have the bioreactors with antibiotic three different concentrations. Then in the endpoint, they look at metagenomics, so sequencing to see the different biodiversity of these biofilms. Mm -hmm. But they also look with microscopy at the biofilm architecture analysis. Mm -hmm. So they look both at what is in that biofilm, but also what is the structure? Has the structure changed? Is mm. it different than when there is no antibiotic? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So these these communities of biofilms, were they, they were multiple species yes. then? Mm. They actually allow them to establish naturally mm. coming from the water. You know? oh, of course. So yes. then, yeah. Mm. So what did they find, right? That's yeah, kind of like mm -hmm. the cool thing. So they did find that the biofilm structure was altered in the submit exposure treatments, most of it at the highest concentration, so one-tenth of the MIC. They see a reduction of biofilm thickness, mm -hmm. and they also see a reduction of biomass looking at the percentage of bacteria, but also on the presence of autotrophs and the presence of the EPS composition, the extra polysaccharide composition in the biofilm matrix. When looking at the taxonomy, which means the amount of different species that are there by metagenomic sequencing, they see that the taxonomic profile of the biofilm has shifted in response to the sub-MIC presence of antibiotics, and it has shifted affecting mostly actinobacteria and proteobacteria. Mm -hmm. And even though they had to look into this biodiversity and taxonomy using three different methods, they could see that there was some consensus across the three methods on the changes happening to the composition of the biofilm. 
they they look at the resistome, so like what happens with the resistant genes mm. presence in this biofilm community. And they could see an increased copy number of antibiotic resistant genes in samples that had the sub-MIC exposure. And they could also see an increased gene richness. So Ooh. there's a little bit of a change there. And then they looked at something that I'm not sure I completely understand so well. They looked into something they call the virulome, which first I thought, are they talking about virus? Mm-hmm. But no, apparently it's the virulome is the composition of virulence genes, potential ah, yeah. virulence genes. Mm-hmm. And there they saw virulence genes in all samples. So both the ones that had that were treated with antibiotics and the ones that was not treated with antibiotics. Uh-huh, okay. So I guess there are just genes in the biofilm in the population that has these uh, virulence factors. Oh, but the virulence mm. factors were very different. They look into 89 different genes. Um, okay. So if you, mm. anybody out there is interested in this kind of virulence, mm. there's more data in the paper as well. And then indeed also a pretty cool thing, I think, is that because we know that the biofilm change in the structure, it also changed in the composition that it had. And we also saw that there is an increase in antibiotic resistance, so this resistome. So they did some uh, statistic analysis that actually shows that the bacterial and the resistome composition changes that happened with this treatment and in sub-MIC were associated and there was some correlation. So ah. that it is more likely that this change in the resistome, it also comes because of the change in the diversity of the biofilm mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and that happens under the MIC treatment samples. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So yeah, there's high evidence that these sub-MIC concentrations in this highly natural replication <laughs> in the lab of the biofilm community in rivers it, it has an effect, basically. That is super interesting. Yeah, that was a very long explanation. No, no, but it was great. And I mean, it's it's uh, still a complex paper. I mean, I have worked with, I actually work with biofilms and sub-MIC. And biofilms are incredibly complicated and hard to <laughs> yes. work with. And I think that this setup that they have actually using the real, the real water, <laughs> but the water from the river is super fascinating because otherwise we try to reproduce things in the lab. I know groups have tried to do like fake sewage water and stuff. And it's, I mean, sometimes that is needed to be done. You can't always have the real thing, but when you can, that is so, so cool. I agree. I mean, I've been following what is happening in in the lab here of people working with biofilms and then they have developed these methods to study biofilms in tubes and plates. But Mm. in general, we work with very defined cultures, right? We have this bacteria Mm -hmm. and we have this maybe family of bacteria working together, but we don't really have a fully natural environment in the things we do. And don't get me wrong, it's very important to control as much as you can to be able to know what things do what. Mm -hmm. But the nature is intrinsically complex. So mm. can we control some stuff, but still mm. see some effect? I think there's a value on getting that, Absolutely. that knowledge. You get different perspectives. You can answer. It's all depending on what questions you ask. Yes. And I think uh, the data in this paper is important when we think about a risk assessment, you know, mm. of the residues that might be in the natural environment and how are we going to mitigate those potential risks? You need mm. to know how things affect each other. Yeah. So it was pretty interesting to read this paper like yes. every month. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also an open access paper. So leaving the link to it as well in a case that you guys are more interested in the particular data published. Want to dig deeper into the data. Yes. But uh, that was what we have for you in yeah. this month of September. Yeah, back from summer. Back from summer. Did you have a good summer? I had a great summer, but now I'm excited for autumn, actually. Yes. Autumn feels cozy. Yeah, And I when agree. I think about it, yeah, it feels nice. <laughs> it's also a bit of a restart, you know. You have had time over the summer to relax and, like, load the batteries. Mm-hmm. Now you're ready for some new stuff. Exactly, yeah. I'm, I'm excited for this autumn as well. Yeah. Great. We'll see you then on the month of... October. See ya! For more information about the Uppsala Antibiotic Center, please visit our website. You can find a link in the episode notes. You can also follow us in Twitter. Our handle is UAC underscore UU. This episode was brought to you by the AMR Studios, composed by Eva Garmendia, Jenny Jackman, and Po Chen Tang. And a big thank you to Henrik Nys for letting us use his song, Sound the Alarm.